no, I was just going to keep talking about Steely Dan, so you might want to cut me off there. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about it in the episode. Jeremy will really love editing it. Yeah. I get to frame how this all ends up. <laughs> yeah, you better be nice to him. He gets to decide whether you sound like an idiot or not. I decide that, sir. <laughs> and it's been decided. I just turned that into, I decide that I hate Steely Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, part-time copy editor and director of franchise development for Dippin' Dots, Peter Cook. No, no Peter? We lost Peter? Peter? Hello? I'm back now. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't well, hear you anything. you just got introduced. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Whatever my title is, I stand by it. Hello. <laughs> Should we just start over? No, I love that. <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> and we're also joined by Age of Empires 2 Pro Circuit Strategy Consultant and Early Game Specialist, Jeremy Ruggles. It's all about the drush, baby. Yeah, you got any big Age of Empires plans coming up soon, Jeremy? Yes. R immediately following this podcast, we're throwing down a game. That's right. That's how cool we are. Age of Empires 2. Speaking of being cool, we have... With the expansion. Yeah, Age of Empires 2. Koreans. Two, we, the de definitive edition, all of the expansions. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it right. So we're also joined by a special guest who is a underground Facebook influencer and aspiring hard times writer, Ryan Werner. Hello. That all sounds accurate enough. That's the first time that you introduced a title and it was true. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. I don't know if anybody's picked up on this, but most of these titles are fake, but sometimes there's a little bit of truth and that time there was a lot of truth. You were telling me not to mention Jeremy's lack of success at Age of Empires. So... <laughs> wow he tries he tries it's okay blames it on lag a lot i've heard I'm getting better how many hard times articles have you gotten published so far ryan just two there's a big focus on the uh coronavirus right now and as well as politics so i haven't really had too much luck in those fields there are people much funnier than i am in general but especially on that hard times pitch group i feel like everyone's just hilarious so to get anything through was kind of uh sure sure was kind of incredible i've been following your uh, unpublished hard times articles you've been posting on the facebook and i gotta say some of those felt like they should have been on there i've seen some hard time stuff i didn't think was funny but yeah just keep I, trying kid you'll make it one of these days i will uh I will be able to ascend to the onion or something like that and then also still just be a copywriter in <laughs> iowa so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i had a, wait can you tell us what one of your like titles was one that got accepted or one that did not get accepted one of each your favorite non-accepted and one accepted okay the one that i got accepted was a crust punk who passes out at party wakes up with their face tattoo of a dick covered up and one that i didn't <laughs> <laughs> 
and then oh what's a good one that i didn't get i'm looking over the list yeah i've pitched i've pitched probably close to like a hundred but just never uh never had a tongue get through oh <laughs> i always liked meet bryce ambient music's bad boy <laughs> <laughs> i like the uh, the jay mascus one that you had posted I forget the the full oh phrasing of I've it got that here one sec punk who casually recites jay mascus life story knows essentially nothing about own father Oh, <laughs> oh man, that that one cuts deep. It's a bit harsh. That that's a shout out for my buddy Ike there. <laughs> the harsh times. The, <laughs> what was the, the harsh tokes? The 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 tokes are very harsh. I was very upset that a uh, tool fans missionary trip helps over four hundred Cambodian children understand the Fibonacci sequence was never accepted. <laughs> I just don't know why that didn't make it. That seems like gold. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> can't all be zingers okay i think i think everything is okay so ryan before we proceed with this episode i'm gonna need you to correctly rank all of these uh brothers bands so you've got the almond brothers the blues brothers the righteous brothers and the doobie brothers okay we had the almonds the righties the blues uh i would say almonds doobies righteous brothers blues brothers mm. that's incorrect on a couple levels but okay that's fine <laughs> best to worst in the that was the best to worst ranking is that what we were supposed to do <laughs> yeah yeah all right peter and jeremy you want to take a crack at this before we keep going didn't we do this on the the huey lewis episode no we no, did it we on were the talk- trip there yeah, we were talking about it during setup, but oh. there was no recorded evidence of the correct answer to this question. Oh. I mean, the right. answer is blues, righteous, doobies. The almonds don't rank at all. <laughs> and the almond brothers just don't exist anymore. No, they're, they're not on my list. <laughs> okay, interesting take. Peter, you want to take, uh, take a crack at it? To avoid getting chastised. I will say Doobie Brothers, Doobie Brothers, Doobie Brothers, Doobie Brothers. There it is. That is correct. <laughs> Burn. Not to say that there is actually a right answer, but personally, I would go Doobies, Almond, Blues Brothers, and then Righteous Brothers at the end. That's probably what mine would That's be, too. Or, or maybe I'd actually be flipped. Almond, Doobie, Blues, Righteous. Okay. Yeah, the, the Almond Brothers and the Doobie Brothers are kind of a neck and neck. They're both good. They both had some albums that were better than others. But anyway. I asked this because we're talking about the Doobie Brothers today. Do you guys know that? Yeah. I'd heard rumors. Yeah. The Fleetwood okay. Mac record. We're talking about we're talking about their best-selling album, their late period masterpiece, their controversial album that has fans split from coast to coast. 1978's Minute by Minute. Ooh. When you say fans, do you mean dads? <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't think you have to definitely be a dad to like this band, but it sure helps. You could be an uncle. Okay. Yeah. I think you could be a mother. (laughs) You could. Well, you could exist outside the realm of gender and still love the doobies. I do believe, but it helps if you're a dad. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it helps a whole lot. I definitely didn't like the. I definitely did not like the Doobie Brothers before I became a dad. So there is that. I submit that evidence. Can confirm. Maybe my time will come. Yeah. You probably like 10 CC after you became a dad too. 
<laughs> He's never becoming a dad now. <laughs> Truth. He was contemplating fatherhood all these years up until that exact moment. He will Guys. not be using his 10 CC for that. <laughs> Ooh, oh. I just got the snip. You're going to have to find a different excuse to search on eBay for Rippington's blankets then. What <laughs> album are we doing? We're doing a Rippington's album, aren't we? <laughs> no, we're doing minute by minute. In fact, could you just play me the title track off this album right now, Jeremy? Yeah. That's uh, side A, track three. Wait a gosh darn minute. That did not sound like a biker rock band. Oh, it sure did not. There's a lot of heavily divided opinions surrounding this record and this lineup, this phase in the Dewey Brothers' existence. I posted a picture of this album a few weeks ago on the I'd Buy That for a Dollar Facebook group expressing my love for this record and how I think it's one of the best blue-eyed soul albums of the 70s. Turns out a lot of people agree with me, and a lot of people strongly disagree with me. So (laughs) one of the things I wanted to kind of explore... On the internet? On this episode. Yeah, really? (laughs) Seems odd. Most of the time when I post a record, it's like one or two people like, yep, cool record, and no one else participates. But this time it was like 15, 20 comments of like, oh, that record sucks. It was better before. Like, nope, this is the best one. Just... Lots of opinions surrounding this album, and specifically this lead singer, Michael McDonald. Which Mm. leads me to one other quick question. Uh, What do the bands Van Halen, the Doobie Brothers, and ACDC have in common? They were produced by Ted Templeman? I don't think ACDC was. (laughs) (laughs) Van Halen and the Doobie Brothers both were. (laughs) Is that? Wow. 
I'm going to say that they got most famous with fake singers. <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> like the real singer who started the band wasn't in the band when they got famous. Uh, that's close to the truth, Ryan. Would you like to weigh in? I mean, are we talking about real Van Halen or the David Lee Roth Van Halen? Just Van Halen, whatever. <laughs> Two distinct phases of singers. I mean, all variations of it are pretty unimportant to me, so. <sighs> That's sad. Actually, Sean loves Gary Sharon. <laughs> that record's not as bad as you think it is. It's much worse. Van Halen 3? Yes. <laughs> it's worse. <laughs> I watched the Todd in the Shadows train records of that one. Oh, Todd in the Shadows is great. Yeah, I've been watching all of his videos. So the 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 answer is the Young Brothers. <laughs> the answer is all three of them somehow navigated maintaining a large level of success while completely changing their lead singer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's obviously a lot of arguments as to like which singer was better in each band, but all three of them made a lot of money with both of their different lead singers. Yeah. Cool. And uh, ACDC, I can hardly tell the difference. I know the diehards would say differently that Bon Scott's much better, but yeah, that was part of the thing with ACDC was like, holy crap, how did they find a singer that sounds exactly like the original guy, which was not really the case with the Doobie Brothers or Van Halen as much. And then how did Cinderella find but, a guy uh, that sounds just like Bon Scott and Brian Jones? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> So I'm kind of curious what each co-host of this podcast relationship is with this band. Like, did you grow up listening to them? Do you have this record? Do you like this band, et cetera, et cetera? Why don't we start with Ryan? I mean, I grew up with the Doobie Brothers in the same way that any like dirt ball from a small town in the Midwest grows up with the Doobie Brothers. You grow up with slightly uh, polluted air and fast food and the Doobie Brothers. Like, that's just kind of part of it so I, I don't know if i have this record i might it's one of those things where you go and buy a stack of dollar records and you might have it but i've probably listened to it digitally more than anything or maybe like an all on an old bmg cd that my neighbor had but yeah it feels like i think part of the part of the reason this record is so good too is it sounds like these songs have been around forever even though something like open your eyes on the second side wasn't a hit it feels like it feels like it could have been feels like i've heard it a million times even if i know i haven't yeah i don't i don't know yeah i would i would agree with that it, it definitely feels like the perfect pop record of its day like it makes sense why this was so huge jeremy what what's your relationship more or less the same growing up with classic rock radio that my parents listened to i would say when you ask that brother's question it's kind of funny to me because all of those classic rock bands with brothers in their names kind of like mush in my mind as to like one mediocre classic rock band. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> you are like, you got to listen to this album, Jeremy. This is way different than, you know, the Doobie Brothers you think you know. <laughs> and it is different, but it's just Steely Dan. <laughs> 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 yeah, we'll be definitely touching on a lot more Steely Dan references throughout this episode, I'm sure. There's a super strong connection between Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers. But uh, Peter, you want to tell us about your personal journeys with the Doobies? I didn't really know 
their music as a teenager. Although one of the first their first songs that I recall knowing hearing was It Keeps You Running because it was on the Forrest Gump soundtrack, which was one of my eye-opening experiences with a lot of music from the 60s and 70s when I was 14 years old. And then when I started getting into classic rock radio a few years later and I knew the name the Doobie Brothers, which sounded kind of cool to me. But then I heard all their songs and it didn't sound anything like It Keeps You Running, which is a Michael McDonald sang song, correct? I believe so, yeah. This band doesn't sound anything like that band from the Forrest Gump soundtrack, like listen to the music and songs like that. So when you were first posing your question about the Doobie Brothers, I automatically think of the more classic rock radio version of the band. And then you reminded me of, uh, this is when we were talking about it on our way to Chicago, you reminded me of What a Fool Believes, and I remember, oh yeah, there was a band called Self that did a cover of that song using all toy instruments, and I used to love to play that on wider, when we were wider DJs, and piss off the veteran DJs. (laughs) 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 This is a very faithful cover, and uh, Bat Guano got pissed at me, that was pretty funny. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, <laughs> probably not the only time probably not the only time you're correct and uh shout out to bat guano what's up bat guano but I d- i've never really delved into their albums i've never really and so it was cool to listen to to more of them i've never i don't think i'd ever listened to one front to back so how'd you feel about minute to minute with your uh recent exposure i'm currently divided and i think it's culturally i think it's great it's fun music But the world that we now live in, where J.D. Riznar has made Yacht Rock, uh, J.D. Riznar from Michigan, has made, with his Yacht Rock series, has kind of made the genre into a parody. I almost am partially feeling like I'm listening to comedy music when I listen to them. (laughs) And and the other part of me is having a lot of fun. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I think in a lot of ways that encapsulates a lot of the varied opinions about this band and this record. My personal experience with it is I think when I first started buying records, I think I got a box of dollar records from like a friend's dad or something and kept a few and kept a bunch because I was like, oh, these are like classic rock records that you're supposed to have. I think there was one or two Doobie Brothers records in there, like The Captain and Me. And when I, as I gradually started actually listening to these records and deciding if I liked them or not, the Doobie Brothers were a pretty early, like, nah, this is not my thing. And I pretty much just passed them off for the next 10 years, you know, knew a couple of the hits, obviously, probably more of the earlier hits, you know, listen to the music, Jesus is just all right, et cetera. <laughs> and kind of just associated like Jeremy with just a general, like, this is a classic rock radio band that's not offensive but it's just super not my thing and i have no reason to ever put one of their records on again the turning point for me with this was the thundercat record that came out a few years ago where the first single off of it was a track that features michael mcdonald and kenny loggins both doing verses on it and that track is awesome yes i was like man like okay if thundercat thinks these guys are cool and they both just slayed on this song Maybe I need to take a second look at some of this stuff. And then I was DJing with a friend of mine, Trevor Coleman, DJ Caribbean Health. And he put on one of the MF Doom instrumental albums. 
and the track was Mandrake, which is basically just a loop of the intro to the song What a Fool Believes off this record. I was like, man, this is so good. Like, what are they sampling? It's like, oh, it's the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> I was like, okay. All right, Thundercat and MF Doom are repping the Doobie Brothers. I definitely need to take a second look, and I probably like the next day at the record store put on this copy of Minute by Minute and was like, okay, this record slaps. I need to figure out what's going on with the Doobie Brothers. Listened to the early stuff again, didn't really like it, and then started reading up on how they made this huge transition in about 1975 where they switched lead singers and completely changed up their style of music. And I've been a fan of the late period ever since. Before we talk anymore, how about we play another track? I'm into it. About what a fool believes, the one that was just mentioned. Ooh, yeah. Side A, the track hit. two, Jeremy. The big S- hit. Swinging the hits. mentioned this already that ted templeman produced this record as well as van halen and they were in the same year van halen's first album and this doobie brothers album were the same year they couldn't sound more different there is one track in this album that sounds a lot like van halen though is there (laughs) that's the crossover yeah that's (laughs) (laughs) i feel like amazingly that song right there if you're this is 1978 i feel like it's predicting the eighties along with stuff like what the cars were doing at this time. And obviously Van Halen, I'm not saying that Ted Templeman himself was at the pushing culture along solely, but it's really interesting that he was able to uh, take two distinctly different bands and push the sound of the next decade, a couple years in advance. 
I would like to propose that you could swap the lyrics for these two bands and just have the songs be the same style and nobody would notice, though. What two bands? Van Halen and Doobie Brothers? Van Halen and the Doobie Brothers? Yeah. No way. Van Halen lyrics are great. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's party time with Van Halen. Yeah, like David Lee Roth fucks. Michael McDonald makes love. There's a big difference. (laughs) Truth. That's that's a good point. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. So what's the comparison between uh, Skunk Baxter and Eddie Van Halen then? <laughs> Ooh, Eddie Van Halen was not an Ultimate Spinach or the Dan. <laughs> That's true. True. And he was he not an not NSA agent. Of those. Wait, what? You did not know that? That Jeff Skunk Baxter had a position at the NSA? <laughs> no. Is that real? Am I being fucked oh, it's, with? Uh, <laughs> it's very real. He quit the band after this record and got really interested in Rockets. Yep. What? Yeah, he was. Uh, he had a chair. He had a chair on the uh, congressional advisory board for uh, missile defense. I totally forgot about that, but I did see that. Yeah. a while back. Wow, you just rocked my world. I'm like, I know when I think of people that I want to work at the NSA, I think of guys that look like they're really good at darts and like making joints out of things that shouldn't <laughs> have, be like joints. <laughs> Like, yeah, man, I got a toilet paper tube and a uh, pine cone. So, like, we're going to get fucked up if you want to go out behind this dumpster here. Also, I work for the NSA. <laughs> yeah, no picture of uh, Jeff Skunk Baxter that I've seen has been without his ridiculously over-the-top mustache. And it just seems to get worse with age, too. So, I can imagine those uh, high-level missile defense meetings were pretty entertaining for some people. <laughs> It's like the alternate 1985 of Ace Freely always talking about how he's an inventor. It's like, what would happen if he actually did invent anything? It's like, oh, he would end up on the NSA and it would be fucking bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys think that what a fool believes would sort of be talked about or remembered at all without Yacht Rock happening as like a series, not as like a genre? No, I don't because I feel like I should have known the song before... I heard that self cover and was like, oh, this is the Doobie Brothers that did this originally. And and it also misled me to believe that Kenny Loggins had been in the Doobie Brothers because he was a co-writer of that song. Right. Yeah. Him and Michael were like best buds. And that's the only song he co-wrote on this album. Yeah. And so, no, I think that I think that song has had a resurgence in the last decade or plus. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say that it would be remembered. Maybe not quite to the same extent. The thing I've witnessed is there's a couple different waves of resurgence with this band. You've got the people who were our age when this record came out that want nothing to do with it because they heard nothing but this these songs for three years on the radio. And they just hate everything that has to do with Michael McDonald and this version of the band. Yeah. And then there's the people that ironically got into it because of the Yacht Rock youtube series which was kind of a while ago at this point right peter yeah it was like 2006 2007 sure holy shit and then i'm i'm seeing this (laughs) wave of musicians and influencers who are kind of reevaluating a lot of this yacht rock stuff strictly on the musicality of it and recognizing like yeah there's a little bit of cheese and a lot of hype and baggage with it but a lot of this music was really good and made by some of the best musicians in the world at this time Michael McDonald performed that song with Thundercat at like Coachella the year after that record came out and people were loving it. 
I don't know. I think there's, I think there's a couple different lenses to look at that through. Yeah. I feel like Rick Astley and that whole phenomenon might've put back the dubs getting more respect earlier because it was right around the same time as the Yacht Rock series, the whole Rick rolling thing. And Mm -hmm. I think Rick Astley is totally like a poorer version (laughs) of this stuff. Definitely. I think what a fool believes is kind of like an undeniable song though like not liking it is kind of just admitting you don't like that genre of music at all it's kind of just or that you're just not allowing yourself to like good songs well yeah i mean it'd be like saying like oh i hate johnny be good or like superstition or master of puppets or something like oh then you don't like that kind of music (laughs) (laughs) or like even like what is love like okay you don't like shitty euro pop that's fine (laughs) like you know (laughs) it's just like a perfect song that encapsulates an entire genre with it yeah yeah yeah. and i think was kind of the template for that genre definitely personally my approach to it like i said with you know listening to the uh mf doom sample of it i bought the seven inch of that song before i bought the lp and i unless i've completely forgotten i don't remember hearing that song growing up so it was kind of a new experience for me and i started DJing with that seven inch at some like outdoor DJ gigs I was doing over the summer. And every time I played it, people come up like, Oh, I love this song. This is the best. And people of all age groups too. So it kind of was like, I didn't realize how strong of opinions people have about this, both good and bad. It's been interesting seeing the different groups of people and where they're coming from with this. I was a little disappointed in my research to find out that the Doobie Brothers also think their band name is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Them and Archers of Loaf. Yeah. That was definitely a contributing factor to me not getting into this band for so long. I was like, that's the stupidest name. Like, I just don't want to have anything to do with this. See, I, th- I think that I thought it was a name that sounded like it'd be a hilarious band that they would not take themselves so seriously and the music would speak for itself. And the older stuff I heard from by them didn't live up to that but it almost works better with this stuff for me yeah the fact that this is under that kind of name yeah so earlier today i watched a whole hour-long documentary about this band from start to finish and they had a lot of live footage mixed in the one thing i was noticing is they really seem to just keep improving as they went you know michael mcdonald changed jeff baxter joined the group and they made some more lineup changes later on. But for the most part, it was a lot of the same musicians during that transition. And when you watch earlier live footage of some of their hits and then later versions with Michael McDonald, they're just so much better. The arrangements are so much interesting. There's a lot more groove and there's a lot more soul. There's a lot more interesting chords going on. The bass lines are way better. One thing that Jeff Baxter in the documentary said was that after... Steely Dan's live band broke up and he was looking for a new group to join. He had a few different options and he picked the Doobie Brothers because he thought that there was a lot of untapped musicality in the group. He thought that the music they were making at that point was good, but not great. But all of the musicians were better than the music they were making. And he wanted to join and help them kind of unlock that potential. And he's also the reason that Michael McDonald joined the group in 1975 and really just exploded into a much more interesting pop band, in my opinion. What did Michael McDonald do before this? He was with Steely Dan. Oh, he was. That's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, he he was with Steely Dan. Yeah, and he continued to work with Steely Dan all throughout their career, doing a lot of harmonies and background vocals and things like that. 
and still works with Donald Fagan a lot. He's been in two different like super groups with Donald Fagan in the last 20 years. I think it's weird that not that he did, was in Steely Dan before he was in the Doobies, but that he wasn't like doing anything before Steely Dan. He was just in like these small little bands around his area and then gets plucked out of nowhere to sing on these Steely Dan songs and like just kills it. <laughs> yeah, totally. He was in um, Dell Tones or something. The, the Del Rays, Del who Rays. had one record on Stacks in 1965 and didn't go anywhere with it. Um, and it's it's pretty generic garage rock. I, I wasn't blown away, but it is interesting to hear what Michael McDonald was doing in the mid-60s before getting that uh, Steely Dan pickup a few years later. When did that record come out? Well, according to Discogs, the Del Rays had two 45s, one in 1965 on Stacks, and then one on a label called Arch Records in 1968. Wow, he would have been 13 when the first one came out then. That's crazy. Wow. Now, it doesn't say like which members are on which records, so I'm going to go ahead and say it's possible he wasn't in the band on the first record, but he's listed as a member of the group, so I think he was on both of them. That's weird. And he does look super young in the pictures. That means he would have been like 25 when they were re- 25, 26 when they were recording minute by minute. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. Wow. And the the one thing I found pretty interesting by watching the documentary and some other interview footage is just how humble Michael McDonald was about this whole thing. He was one of the biggest, highest earning musicians of the time during the late 70s and early 80s. And his whole thing was, he joined the Dewey Brothers super last minute. I don't know if you guys looked into that story at all, but their original lead singer, Tom Johnston, was suffering from illness and exhaustion and drug addiction in the 70s and just hit a point where he couldn't tour with the band anymore and had to leave halfway through the tour and instead of canceling the tour they decide to have their guitarist patrick simmons take over lead vocals and then just add a keyboardist to help with the vocal harmonies and pretty quickly michael mcdonald the you know keyboardist started taking over a lot of the lead vocals and before they knew it was just the lead singer of the band like there was no intention of doing that and the whole time michael mcdonald was talking about how Every day he was just expecting to be fired from the band. Like he thought he was just a temporary replacement. This was just a gig he had for a few months until it dried up. And then all of a sudden he's like winning Grammys and is a superstar because of this chance thing that happened. Yeah, it's cool that they were allowed him to take to fill that position. You take a band like the the Birds who hired Graham Parsons as to be kind of another member and then he's during the recording of sweetheart of the rodeo he started to take over all the lead vocals to the point that they uh roger mcguinn ended up recording over several of his songs because they were like wait hold on this guy's taking over the band we can't have that that's why graham parsons is only on one birds album it's cool i mean i think this was the right move for the dubes yeah absolutely and it, it seemed like they were kind of a little bit typecast throughout their career leading up to this when they were a small band gigging around Northern California, they kind of accidentally developed a strong following with a lot of local biker gangs and had that aesthetic going for them. Their first record, they're wearing like leather and they've got long hair and they look like kind of a tough band. The songs are a little more rock oriented and they, they kept that image for a while until they kind of accidentally had some hits with some songs that had some more interesting arrangements and acoustic tracks on it. 
uh, like the song Black Water, for example, was supposed to be a B-side, and then radio stations started playing that instead of the A-side and made it a hit for them. And that they kind of recognized that as one of the major turning points in their career where they were allowed to write more interesting music because they were all influenced by a lot of folk and soul and jazz songs that they felt like they couldn't put into their band previous to that because they thought it would alienate their fans. That one is a little more experimental, especially for classic rock radio when they kind of go into the funky Dixieland part. Yeah, the like weird vocal breakdown and everything. Yeah. Yeah, it always stood out to me uh, on classic rock that it was interesting to hear a group with a harder sound going into something like that. Another piece of interesting early band trivia that you might like, Peter. Uh, they formed in 1970 when drummer John Hartman decided that he really wanted to meet the members of Moby Grape and hopefully start a new band with some of them <laughs> as Moby Grape was falling apart. So he, yeah. he traveled to California and met Skip Spence. And Skip Spence is the one who introduced the drummer to the singer Tom Johnston and then was in a band with them for a while. They, uh, wow. Yeah, they were initially called PUD, P U D. We're just Gross. like, why didn't they take off? <laughs> <laughs> they were just like a local band playing around San Jose as a trio with Skip Spence. They were a bunch of jerk offs. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to, 1970, Skip Spence was already had already kind of had his falling apart had left Moby Grape and been institutionalized and then recorded or, and I he was probably drifting around. So I, I think that he might've had a little bit of stigma attached to his name as far as working with him at that point. Sure. He was uh, described as being an occasional member of the band, which I imagine is more due to his flakiness than them <sighs> not wanting to work with him. <laughs> yeah, he was very flaky and flighty. Which just that's why he got kicked out of Jefferson Airplane because he yeah. just not he'd rather go to Mexico with a couple girls than show up for a gig. Sure. So yeah, mostly because of the uh flakiness of skip spence they quickly added guitarist and singer patrick simmons and bassist dave shrogan and started gigging around northern california doing some smaller tours and around this time a friend of theirs named keith dino rosen said to them why don't you guys call yourself the doobie brothers because you're always smoking pot oh wow no way it says pot <laughs> reference i take back thinking they have a cool name <laughs> And they thought that was the dumbest name ever, and but couldn't think of anything better, so they played a couple <laughs> gigs under that name, and then it just stuck, <laughs> and they were the Doobie Brothers for the rest of their career. <laughs> Ooh, be careful what you go by. You may get stuck with it. Yep. Signed to Warner Brothers in 1971, stayed on that label pretty much their whole career, as far as I know. Their first album did not sell very well. The one I mentioned with the self-titled album where they're kind of trying to appeal to the biker crowd. And then they dropped their second record, Toulouse Street, on 1972, and that sold a few million copies, and their career just took off from there. And just a few years later, 1975, their singer had to quit, and they brought in Michael McDonald. And Michael did four records with them. So the first one was called Taking It to the Streets, which was a bigger hit than they thought it was going to be. And Michael's kind of like phasing in on there. He's not on all the tracks. The original singer is still on some of it. And then they put out their next record with him, Living on the Fault Line in 1977, which was their worst selling record aside from their first one that they'd had so far. So Michael was 
thinking like, okay, this is definitely it. Like I just replaced the singer of this very popular band and then I'm tanking with them. I'm going to get kicked out. This is over. They decide to make another record with them. And here we have Minute by Minute, their best-selling album. But then they broke up after this, right? They did. They made one more record after this, One Step Closer, which, again, people have pretty divided opinions on. It's generally not well-reviewed. It's like the least valuable of all their albums. But it, as Ryan and I were talking about earlier, it does have some pretty good moments on it. Yeah. Didn't the guitar player quit after this? The Like one of the only original guys left? Patrick Simmons quit right after that album came out, which is officially why they broke up because they no longer had any original members and were like, you know what? This band sounds nothing like it did when it started. We don't have an original member. We should probably just stop. Yeah. Patrick Simmons sings on a couple tracks on this, doesn't he? He sings on about half the tracks, actually. Is it that, it's that many? Yeah. Yeah. There's one instrumental and then it's pretty much 50-50 aside from that. So speaking of Patrick Simmons. How about we play another track, one that features him on lead vocals singing over a Michael McDonald arrangement. So you get kind of an interesting blend of the old, harder rock style with the new soul and jazz influence. So that's the track called Dependent on You, side A, track four, Jeremy, if you please. Clash of the Doobies. This is the track that I really think paved the way for Huey Lewis in the News.
Now that's a guitar solo right there. I don't know if you boys agree with me on that. Hard to argue. Did you hear my woo? Some Mahavishnu shit is what I think Ryan commented. That's exactly what I said. He's even got that like ice picky fusion tone. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> I love it. And it's it's great. It's tasty. It's interesting. And it's not too long. Fits the song. Ugh, it's so good. He takes his eight bars and gets the hell out of there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did appreciate that. <laughs> That was the only part you liked, Jeremy, was the shortness of the solo? It was more tasteful than it could have been. <laughs> <laughs> what praise you give. <laughs> it could have been garbage, but it was He's no okay. Larry Carlton, I will admit. <laughs> Sean, were you commenting that the vocal there was a little David Lee Rothish? It was pretty much the exact halfway point between Donald Fagan and, and David Lee Roth, I would say. <laughs> I got a big Fagin vibe off that too. Like Simmons, what are you doing? Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I would say most of the tracks where he's singing on this album, you get kind of that weird cross between Van Halen and Steely Dan. That's interesting mashup. You might not even think of it that way, but once you listen to it with that image in mind, you can't get it out of your head. As long as it's the real Van Halen and not the Sammy Hagar, Van Hagar. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. We, we all love Sharon, we we can ad- agree on that. Oh yeah. <laughs> if there's We're one on thing the we can agree on. <laughs> Sean, did you read the Rolling Stone article from the 70s? I did not. <laughs> Would you care to enlighten Did you us read a that bit? one article in Rolling Stone from the 70s, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> it's something like the Doobie Brothers, an unsung story of rock and roll or something. One of the interesting little tidbits from it though. The back cover, I don't know if, do you have your copy in front of you? I sure do. All of you? Everybody have their copies? (laughs) I have nothing in front of me. I didn't even notice at first that in the the back cover that they're floating, and they were talking about the photo shoot of this, where like 14 or 15 times, they were taken up in a jet and just nosediving. (laughs) for like 30 seconds to create weightlessness and then taking these pictures of them, you know, in a zero G free fall. And they (laughs) were using it as this metaphor of by the end of it, they were all feeling sick and exhausted. And it was just this ridiculous spectacle to try and capture this moment. Are you saying this is how you felt? Is this a metaphor for how you felt after (laughs) listening to this album, Jeremy? (laughs) No, but it is like how they felt making these albums and touring 200 shows. And from the article, the band members that had quit already made it very clear they quit because it wasn't what they wanted to be doing. It was like a business. It was tight schedules. It was doing the same things over and over and over until they hated it. Yeah, I just liked that a little metaphor of them like nosediving in a plane over and over and over <laughs> until they were sick. I wonder if the front cover photo was taken after all the nosedives because in that context, they do look a little sweaty and a little sick now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's called 1978, Sean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
if you g- again i wasn't there so i just don't know <laughs> take it from me kid <laughs> if you go to tom johnston's wikipedia page it talks about it, it really dances around why he left and what i could deduce is that it was like st- stomach ulcers and just uh too much like partying on the road and just exhaustion like you said but there are the words road touring lifestyle on his wikipedia and if you click it it takes you to a page called the social effects of rock music it just kind of <laughs> explains how rock and roll makes you tired and worship satan <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> there's also a full paragraph on johnson's wikipedia page of him explaining that it doesn't use his pinky finger when he plays guitar leads and if you want to go fast you should pick up and down instead of just down <laughs> he doesn't like punk i take it he's got all the hot tips yeah i don't understand why that's on there it's so it's so detailed as if i don't know he wrote it himself <laughs> He's a pedant. He's a quite the pedant. A bit of a pedant. Yep. The documentary I watched came out in 1989, and a lot of the footage with him, he seemed to be choosing his words very carefully on what he talked about in regards to his hardships with the band. And yeah, he kind of brushed over his reasons. He was just like, I had a bit of a drug problem, and I was just exhausted. And he also talked more about how he characterizes himself more as an introvert and just needs time at his house like a home base kind of thing and just the years of not having that being with this band all the time plus the drugs and everything else just was completely destroying him both him and their producer and manager kind of agreed that he was just going to kill himself if he kept being in the band and that it was in his best interest to leave which is also why he didn't make a hard exit from the group he kind of phased out over a few years and that has been a part of a lot of the reunion tours and albums and stuff since then. So they, they still maintain a really good relationship with a lot of these people. It was just like a reality that he couldn't overcome. I feel like that's the story with a lot of bands by the late 70s. The, I don't know if the, the excess of, of that decade and just rigorous touring seemed to have fried a lot of bands. Oh. Orson yeah, remembers. <laughs> <laughs> We seem to have developed a bit of a knack for talking about records right as they're about to get hyped more by the general media, and this is a prime example of that. The band officially reunited in 2019, featuring both Michael McDonald and Tom Johnston, and have been doing shows again, and are being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Hmm. Wow. And also, producer Ted Templeman just published a new book about his career in music, featuring, obviously, a lot about the Doobie Brothers and Van Halen. I texted our buddy Isaac Turner. As Ike did I. Turner. Not, not to be confused with, you know, Ike Turner, the very famous one. For our listeners, we have a Kalamazoo Ike Turner, uh, by way of North Dakota. And... Uh, he was actually reading that book when I texted him about uh, being surprised that Van Halen and uh, the first Van Halen album and this Doobie Brothers album were produced by the same guy in the same year. And he said, I'm reading his book right now. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, yeah, Ted, I don't know how if you had things you were going to say about people that Ted Templeman worked with, Sean. I did not. You want to hit us with that list? Well, offhand... I know that he did Van Morrison's Tupelo Honey is one of the records he produced, as well as Captain Beefheart in the Magic Band's Clear Spot. Did you know that? 
I did not know that. That is super cool. Yeah. That's uh, probably the cleanest, one of the cleanest sounding Beefheart records too, but strikes a good balance for me. That's one of the best balance of the more commercial side of the band and some of the stranger, more avant-garde sounds. I really like that Yeah, it's definitely way better than Blue Jeans and (laughs) Moonbeams. Yeah, yeah, those those are some of the lower tier Beefheart records that and Unconditionally Guaranteed are probably the least esteemed records in his catalog but yeah i I think clear spot's fantastic and i remember noticing oh this is van halen's producer doing this one (laughs) (laughs) anyway yeah ted templeman apparently he i don't know what year it was but apparently he was on a plane that was hijacked and it's like the longest hijacking that ever occurred to an airline and it's messed him up for the rest of his life that's what ike told me when i was texting with him oh that's wild yeah. I'm glad it turned out. Otherwise, we wouldn't have uh, Done With Mirrors by Aerosmith. Yeah, I mean, what's a world without that? <laughs> or the first Bullet Boys. Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> smooth up in smooth up in ya. That's a great song, <laughs> if you ask me, which you didn't, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> I wonder if Ted was the one that made them keep doing the nosedives over and over. He was, like, trying to work through his hijacking. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Possibly. Just some uh, immersion therapy going on. We can definitely... Ted, I'm sorry for making jokes at your expense if you're listening. <laughs> we can definitely blame Ted Templeman for uh, forcing every band to allow him to put a shitload of auxiliary percussion on their records for no real reason, played by Ted Templeman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, he does do that, doesn't he? It's on, like, everything. He's always got to... <laughs> he's always got to put a little shaker in, or, like, <laughs> just, I don't... I don't know why he's always doing that, but it's all over everything. Like, even the first Van Halen record, or think of, like, Dance the Night Away from the second Van Halen record. Like, he's always got to put get his shit in there somehow. Yeah, it's just like Puff Daddy always had to go, yeah, 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 in the background of the records he produced. <laughs> well, then you get a co-writing credit, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Puff Daddy and people that like to sample, I mean, Sean, I, it was there all along. Sean asked me before we started recording if I could think of a Tupac connection to the doobie brothers and of course you know michael mcdonald famously his the nate dog and warren g song regulate samples michael mcdonald that song was on the above the rim soundtrack starring tupac wow oh okay thank you thank you thank you so you're doing the lord's work here peter (laughs) you're welcome well that's about all the notes i have we want to do a round of closing thoughts jeremy you got any closing thoughts for us no (laughs) ryan anything anything to leave the people with listening to all these doobie brothers records kind of i mean there's so many of these floating around like like you know you can get it for a dollar because i don't know there's a lot of albums that sold three million copies that we don't see as frequently and i think this one's just a product of how quickly people moved on from a sound that was maybe everywhere and then all of a sudden became uncool almost immediately and no one wanted to touch it. But it makes me wonder where the doobies fall between like maybe the Atlanta rhythm section and the Eagles in terms of respect and how they're viewed in terms of their longevity. But yeah, this record kicks ass. (laughs) That's about all I got to (laughs) say. Definitely. I'm very curious to see if the value on this is affected because it feels like not that long ago that Steely Dan was a generally pretty not respected band. 
and over the years the records have just gone way up in value and all of a sudden everybody is a steely dan fan again and i think if people actually put this record on be like oh this is basically just like more steely dan and i love this too you know is this going to be a 15 dollar record sometime soon also uh, one other little fact that needs to be mentioned when steely dan as a road band broke up in the early 70s and jeff baxter joined the doobie brothers that was because steely dan was opening up for the doobie brothers on that tour what a show mm. far out yeah i know right that <laughs> <laughs> so was part of the reason for jeff joining because he didn't have to even go anywhere didn't have to go home just like stayed on the road and joined a different band halfway through why did people in the 70s want to trick everyone into listening to jazz so much <laughs> like they had to sneak cocaine. it in cocaine they had a lot of cocaine to sell I get... <laughs> okay man I got I, I got an eight ball and a pristine copy of Asia right here <laughs> we're gonna be good friends then <laughs> do you think that like a certain percentage of the hate for this band has to do with this guy coming in and taking away their beloved leather clad hard rock and adding a lot of uh, black music influences to it i wouldn't put it past biker culture to reject <laughs> that sort of thing yeah obviously no one's gonna frame it like that everyone's just like oh they you know they weren't as good anymore they sold out after that asshole joined the group but there's gotta be just a little bit else going on there too for to to spark all these opinions these hard feelings that people have Am I racist if I don't like either version? Probably. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Damn. There's, there's no way of getting away from it. No, you're just not, you're not very fun. Do you pick the Vikings in uh, Age of Empires 2? Because, I mean, that'll be a tell as well. No. I'm a Slavs guy. Oh, that's, that's worse. <laughs> <laughs> hate to break it to you guy but uh <laughs> so my final thought for this episode is just to encourage people to listen to records with ears unclouded by hate maybe there's good songs in there that you just weren't allowing yourself to like previous to this give it a shot we've lately been talking about at the end talking about similar records or artists uh one that i've never really explored deeply but i like a couple songs that get played that might be kind of similar to this is the climax blues band. I know they have that song. I couldn't get it right. I don't even know if that's the title, but I, I love that song. Any, any opinions or knowledge on the climax blues band? I've really never listened to that group too much. So I'll take your word for it. I don't know. I feel like uh, our buddy Daniel Gast was brought them up to me when we were all working at the record store and I don't know if he had really dove in deep either, if there were just a couple songs of his, but who did Ryan mentioned another one? Uh, not, not the average white, the Atlanta, Atlanta rhythm section, Atlanta rhythm section. I feel like I at least know one or two songs by them, but offhand, I can't place what they are. Champagne jam. Oh, okay. Another group that's a little bit similar is the Marshall Tucker band has a lot of mm -hmm. surprisingly good music going on. It's a little bit similar to this kind of, clashing world that the doobie brothers were working in black oak arkansas could kind of get pretty soulful too when they when they were rocking definitely yeah they have some they have some great stuff that well i love their version uh jim dandy oh yeah they did that song and what's the other uh the ozark mountain daredevils jackie blue yeah i mean that's a group i've seen the albums a ton but i don't know if i've ever actually listened to one so these are ones that we have to go in with an open a new open mind right absolutely that's what we're telling our listeners. <laughs> 
another record I've recently done that with and was very pleasantly surprised is the first Kenny Loggins record. Mm. You know, after diving on this, I was like, okay, you know, if Thundercat's going to put Michael McDonald on it, I got to start listening to some Kenny Loggins. And his first record slaps. It's all produced by Bob James. It's got some amazing players on it. It's, again, like a really interesting crossover of folk and jazz and rock and gospel on there. It's it's worth checking out. Definitely going to present that on an episode of this podcast at some point. We're, we're going to do Kenny G. We're going to do Kenny Loggins. The first yep. albums by both the Kennys. We're, we're going super deep. Get ready. Buckle up. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Is there anything Absolutely. you're doing you want the people to know about? You know, I'm trying to live, uh, I'm trying to laugh, trying to love, mostly. Uh, (laughs) Are there any websites in which you do this on that people might want to visit? (laughs) Pornhub.net. Not .com. (laughs) Yeah, if I get enough hits on .net, I can get on a .com here. But I have a band camp (laughs) where I make music of varying degrees of enjoyability. It is ryanwerner.bandcamp.com. Com. I wrote and recorded an album every month last year and over, I don't know, probably if, oh, several different genres. Damn, you're like Viper. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like shitty Bob Bucko. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that, that sounds Aren't good we all though? Aren't we all? Uh, yeah, I'm doing that. I have an Instagram. Yeah, Warner. As Sean mentioned, I am obnoxious on Facebook often enough. Hit him up with those friend requests. Hit me up with the friend requests. I'm always looking for more friends since I'm being deleted by people all the time for asking them to rank zit positions on the body from bad to worst and things like that. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that should have been what we asked at the top, not about the ba- the brothers bands. <laughs> you should ask about the brothers bands. I think that'll go over well on the Internet. I, uh, I'll ask right now. Are you typing it in right now? No. Well, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) History is being made. (laughs) History is being made. Uh, I was. I was being sarcastic. Then I looked up. Kids won't like that. I was, but then I remembered I opened a tab to see what the Slavs specialties were because. Oh, they get a farming bonus and they're good at trash units. Yeah, the technology is huge, too. That's a good tree there. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Tight. So Ryan, are you going to join us in this Age of Empires 2 game that's about to go down in 15 minutes? I would absolutely love that, but I have a Mac, so I cannot. Oh, all right. Well, call us when you get your shit together, okay? I'll figure it out. <laughs> all right, cool. <laughs> figure it out. All right, well, this has been another just wonderful, outstanding episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I'm your host, Sean Hartman. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. Okay, talk to you later, Peter. I'm Peter, Peter Cook. <laughs> I was going to say that we what are we going to go out on? I was going to go out on the last track on the album, How Do the Fools Survive? A question for the ages. They have fool they have a, a obsession with fools on this album. Yeah, it's tied to their inferiority complex. It's like Kiss in the 80s kept writing songs about fire. <laughs> I have to take your word for it on that. You're not going to do Animalize on this uh podcast? I think I bought Asylum for a dollar. I- I'm not <laughs> I absolutely refuse to do any Kiss record or Kiss-related record on this podcast. I'm going to draw a line in the sand right now. All right. Well, I do have a Kiss tattoo if you need to have me back on sometime. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We just lost 20 followers, Sean. It says live, laugh, love gun. (laughs) Christ. Beautiful. I think we can go out on that now. (laughs) 
Includes yet another installment of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. If you'd like to help us out, you can always write us a review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen to this program. Please do that. Give us some kind words. It really helps give us more exposure. Thanks again. And keep listening to us. Keep keep rocking them dubes. Keep smoking them dubes. <laughs> If it's legal where you live.